something this morning as I was reading down in my room. <clears throat> we just sung a couple of songs, hymns, and that first song I, I picked out before everybody got here just because as I was reading through it kind of struck a chord with me. But everything that we just sang, the Lord and His sovereignty, <coughs> His providence, directed singing about throughout all of what's going on, we have a hope. Well, this morning, I was thinking about whenever God gives us a hope, everything that we hope in, whether it's our forgiveness of sin, whether it's our justification before God, whether it's a removal of wrath, whether it's a promise of Christ's return or whether it's a, a promise of eternal life, uh, the destruction of the wicked, uh, the being with Christ forever and ever. I mean, all these things we have hope in, right? And that hope is all based and founded in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that hope that we have in those promises are only as good as the one who promised them, right? It's only as good as the one who makes the promise. If the one who makes the promise isn't reliable or trustworthy, then there really is no hope. It's a false hope. Matter of fact, Paul made clear in several places throughout Scripture that if this is not true, if it isn't all on God, our salvation, if it isn't all upon Christ, then we're most men most miserable. We're still in our sins and we have no hope. Um, the only reason that we have hope is because God does not change. His promises are sure. There is no variableness in God. I mean, honestly, I cannot have a hope that stands sure. I cannot have a hope that that wavers if God does not sustain it within Himself and by Himself. He has to sustain it within Himself by who He is, His characteristics, His attributes, uh, His very essence and nature is, is what sustains that. And through Him, by His work in us, He upholds us in that hope. If I have hope, it's because He has given me hope. The Bible says that His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are His. It is God that is in us that gives us this hope, this hope that's this assurance of our faith, this faith of assurance or this hope of assurance. All of this is given to us by God through the work of the Spirit of God in us because of the work of Christ Jesus for us. But that is only good if God makes good on His promises, right? But if we have a God that cannot be trusted, then there really isn't true hope. We have a hope-so hope, but not a hope as the biblical hope is. A true hope, meaning an earnest expectation. And so I got to thinking about that. Because... I often see people looking at portions of Scripture and they'll point to this, especially those who believe in a conditional time salvation, that God will do, do or do otherwise depending on what you do. And so I got to thinking about that. If, if God determines and purposes all things, and that known unto Him are all His works, the end from the beginning. And He has predestined all things. Now, of course, I realize that the conditionalists uh, out there, they do not believe that God has predestined all things. They only believe that He has predestinated salvation. And then some conditionalists only believe that He predestinated a plan of salvation, not actual salvation. But... <clears throat> if we know, as the Scriptures clearly teach throughout, that God has determined all things, purposed all things, then with that being the case, if He has purposed and determined 
all things, then any notion that we could do something that would cause God to actually change His mind and do something else is contrary to what God has said about Himself. Therefore, it's not God who is being wrong or God has lied to us or there's inconsistency in God's Word. It is us who has misunderstood the intent of what has been written. What am I talking about? Well, turn in Exodus chapter 32. I want to read a portion of Scripture. And there is actually several, whenever I looked at this phrase actually, I found there is like five, six, seven places in Scripture that we see this particular <coughs> phrase that, that has seems to have bothered people. Uh, but we want to get some clarity on what is being talked about. In these. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 32. Now I'm going to start reading at verse 1. But the verse that I particularly want to uh, look at uh, is uh, later on down uh, the way. But I want to get us into context here. If you remember, leading up to where we're at here, God has delivered the people out of Egypt. They have now come, they're at, the, they're, they're at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses has went up to receive the law from God. And he's been gone for a little while. And the people down below getting a little anxious. Getting a little ahead of themselves. Wondering what all's going on. <coughs> thinking Moses has surely went up there and God killed him or something. Don't know if he's coming back. And so they have began to murmur. They've been led away to worship after idols. And of course, we'll see that as we get into this. But this is, this is the backdrop where we're at. Verse 1 says, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up make us gods which shall go before us. For for as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it, or after he made had made it a goat molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. <coughs> and they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and to ro and rose up to play. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now just kind of think about that for a minute. They have just been delivered out of the hand of Egypt. They walked right across the Red Sea on dry land. God had parted the, the, the sea for them. They walked across on dry land. They saw God bring the ocean back over, across, uh, over the top of all of Pharaoh and his army and destroyed them. Uh, they had seeing God provide for them in just about every way. All the miracles in Egypt, as a matter of fact, all the plagues. They were in the land of Goshen, surrounded by all of Egypt, and all of Egypt was afflicted by all those plagues that God sent, but it didn't happen in Goshen. They were protected from all those plagues. Whenever God sent uh, the angel to come and kill all the firstborn of everybody. It wasn't effective to all those that God had chosen. It wasn't effective to all those people. He sent and He killed all those of Egypt. But yet, here these people 
now are at the base of the mountain, just a short little bit of time, and they have turned back and began worshiping idols, even to the point of saying, this golden calf is that they just fashioned. <laughs> I mean, he, this is really, when it gets down to it, and you think about it, our idolatry runs deep, brethren. These people just fashioned this calf out of their own earrings, and they made this thing, saw the man that made it, he fashioned it with his own hands, <laughs> and yet they're going to turn around and give credence to that as the very thing that brought them out of Egypt. The very, the very thing that they've created with their own hands, they said, this is our deliverer. We have made a deliverer after the liking of our own selves. Romans 1 said they made idols. They worshipped the creation rather than the creator. <coughs> but let's take it a little bit further into the spiritual understanding of these things. We believe that we can deliver ourselves by the works of our own hands. These people made their own God and then turned around and began to bow down to this inanimate object and give credence to it as delivering them out of something that came from them, made by them, worked out by them. And they said, hey, this is what brought us out of Egypt. This is what brought us out of Egypt. Brethren, do we not still, this natural man, still think that there is something that we can do by the works of our own hands to make us something acceptable before God? Do we not worship the works of our own flesh? These, these Israelites had bowed down and began to worship a golden calf. <laughs> and can you imagine the indignation of the Lord to see after all this that I have done for you, and yet now you're going to say that calf that you made with your own hands? Brethren, can you imagine the indignation of the Lord whenever men say by the works of their own hands they can make themselves something acceptable unto God? When God has provided in Christ Jesus salvation, I'm thankful that the Lord is merciful. I'm thankful that the Lord has forgiven us of our sin because even the children of grace turn back to the golden calf. Even the children of grace, look at that, and that is a spit in the face of God whenever we think by law-keeping, by our own efforts, by our own religious works, by our zealousness, by whatever we do, that we can do something that is pleasing and honoring to God and worship the works of our own hands and not the Creator, by whose hands we have been delivered. And so here we see these people, and God has looked down upon this and He says, And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. That word stiff-necked there, that word means that they are obstinate. That they are set in their ways. They're bound and determined to be this type of people. That they are immovable. Brethren, that's who our natural man is. Our natural man cannot be anything else but that. Our natural man cannot be anything else but stiff-necked towards God. We see this all throughout the Word. The word stiff-necked is found. You know, he said these people are stiff-necked. That doesn't mean that they have a will that they can exercise that can thwart what I want to do. <coughs> No, that just means that the natural man is always stiff-necked against God. We are in enmity with God. We do not like the God of the Scriptures. We do not like to wait on God and what His purpose and plan is. We're just talking about that in our singing about that in our hymns, about the temptations and trials and all the things that God does in His, uh, in his uh, trying in grace. He tries us. He, he purifies us as gold and silver through the trials and the temptations of life. And our natural man says, I don't like that. I don't like this process that you're bringing me through. I don't like the way that you're doing this. I'd rather look at it a different way. I'd rather see it a different way. 
Or be like Job, I don't deserve this. But yet God has determined these things for us. Our timing. We think that if we pray about something, God automatically just answer our prayer about it, right? Sometimes God says, no, that's not my will. And doesn't answer it. And then we get huffy at God because He didn't. I prayed. You told me if I prayed to you, you'd answer my prayer. Well, He answered your prayer all right. It just wasn't the answer you wanted. He answered no because He is God. We see these people are stiff-necked. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. So basically saying, Moses, get out of the way. I'm fixing to go down and wipe everybody out and just out of you make a great nation. And then look what Moses says. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel thy servants to whom thou swearest by thine own self and said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord, here's the, here's the verse I wanted to get to. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto the people. <clears throat> now that can almost be a quandary for some of us, right? Number one, did the Lord repent? Does the Lord can the Lord repent? What does the Lord have to repent of? He can't sin, right? Well, brethren, we need to understand that the word repent can mean more than one thing. So, the word repent to most of us means a change of mind resulting in a change of action. At least that's what we've been told all of our whole entire life. And some people say repentance is to turn away from sin to not do it anymore. Which I can't find that in the Bible anywhere. <clears throat> okay, We can surely turn from sin, but that doesn't mean we're not ever going to turn back to it. We have a change of mind about something. So if we take that concrete definition and say, well, repentance is a change of mind, then we're saying here that the Lord changed His mind. He was planning on going and killing all these people, but because Moses was such a great orator, and I've actually heard people say this is the actual case, that Moses was such a great orator and stood for the people and reminded God what He said. You know, He went and reminded, hey, don't you... Don't you forget that you told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you were going to make them a great nation and that you were going to give to them a seed and that seed would be great among the peoples. And Don't forget, you said that. Now there are people that actually believe that that has to be done with God. And they try to do that. Matter of fact, all of us do that whenever we say, well, God, didn't I say do this for you? You said that you would bless me if I would do this. Don't we say that a lot? Don't we think that a lot? Well, Lord, you said that if I do right, that you would do right by me. If I give to you, you'd give back to me. See, we try to put God in a box. But what do we see here? We see, and the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto the people. Was Moses such a great orator and reminder of God that God changed his mind? Is that what it meant whenever it says the Lord repented? Well, that word repented, I looked that up in other places where it's used throughout Scripture and, and seen that in many places it's used different ways. The word 
repented just means to turn course and go in another direction. It means to go back. It means to change course, like I said. But it does mean to change mind. <clears throat> but again, my question is, is did God change it? Did Moses change God's mind? Did Abraham change God's mind whenever he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Whenever he said, if I, you find 40 people, if you find 30 people, if you find 20 people, if you find 10 people, was God changing his mind? Okay, well, I won't do it then. Okay, well, I won't do it then. But you got to find this man. Okay, well. No, God determined to, to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And he knew exactly who it was he was going to deliver from Sodom and Gomorrah. And who he was not going to deliver from Sodom and Gomorrah. But what did he do? He exercised in Moses. He exercised in Abraham. He exercises in us these trials, these temptations, these afflictions. He does these things to purify us in our faith. And just with Abraham... What did Abraham learn in that? Well, number one, God hates these things. And he destroyed those cities because of that, and he was just in doing so. But God didn't change his mind. God had always determined to do that, but he knew he had a people in that town, and he removed them from that. And whenever he removed them from that, he carried on with his plan to do exactly what he done. However, the language being used was in a way that we could understand. Just as this, God is using a language that we understand. He is setting a principle. He is setting up a principle for us to learn and understand. That if the people would not be doing this, I would not be bringing my wrath upon them, but their sinfulness deserves my wrath and I will come upon them. But see, we have to read further into the Scripture. We have to understand more of what's going on. Now, before I go further in this, I want us to get something clear. Whenever we come to some places in Scripture where it seems to be a contradiction or inconsistency, as of here, because we know we don't believe that God changes His mind. We don't believe that God uh, uh, you know, made a mistake. We don't believe that Moses was able to convince God or remind him of something because God can't forget. Okay? So what was going on here? Well, look with me if you would because we need to get some absolutes down. I always say, if you look at something, we need to interpret the gray area in light of the black and white. Right? So here it seems that God is changing His mind. It seems that God is being reminded of something that God possibly has forgotten. But let's look at a few things. Look with me if you would, Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. Look with me, if you would, down to verse 6. <clears throat> Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. It says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Now, here is a black and white verse that says that I am the Lord, I change not. So God doesn't change. He doesn't change in nature, nor does He change in purpose, nor does He change in will. His will stays, His determination stays, His purpose stands. 
God does not change. So, whenever we see that, we must look back and say, well, did God repent? Was God sorry? Sometimes people say God was sorry for what He did. So does that mean that God made a mistake? God was sorry for what He did? Man, I'm sorry. Man, I, now, now I feel sorry for what I did now. As if God did something of imperfection? As if God did something that was not right? No. And I know I can already hear some people saying, well, that's what God said whenever He sent the flood. That God was sorry that He made man. That's another example of what we're talking about here. God had a purpose. And if you remember, now keep this in mind, brethren. I don't, hopefully I don't get too scattered in my thoughts here. Lord be gracious to let me keep a good train of thought. Remember, everything in the Old Testament, number one, is written about Christ. And everything in the Old Testament was written for our good that we might learn of Christ. It was written on our behalf. So everything, even though those millions of people throughout all those thousands of years in the Old Testament, they lived and died and they moved and had their being and did all their stuff and went places, stayed home from places, exercised in this and that and did evil and did good and sacrificed and did not sacrifice and everything that took place <clears throat> they really did that but yet God had orchestrated every person, every activity every event that everything that we have record of that we see throughout all the Old Testament that all those interactions with relationships and people and things and places and buildings and cities and all the wickedness and the righteousness that we see, all of that was orchestrated that it might show forth in type and foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that to me is an amazing thing. That here, a, a nation of what is being estimated, maybe a million or two million people coming out of Egypt, being delivered, coming through the Red Sea and being wandering through the wilderness to be led to the land of Canaan and all the things that took place in their lives, that all really happened, but yet it is a perfect illustration and picture of the deliverance of God's people. All the types and foreshadows of Aaron and Moses and, and uh, Abraham and all these things perfectly show, even though they were real persons with real lives and real interactive situations. Yet God orchestrated so that their lives, their stories, their histories would show forth perfectly Christ and His salvation. It's amazing. So we can't, we can't forget those two things. Christ at the center of everything and everything is about Christ in the Old Testament. And everything is written in this so that we might learn and that it might be an example for us of Christ in His salvation. So whenever we look at these things, we must see through the, the, the letter and look to the spiritual. Right? He says here, the Lord repented. Did the Lord change His mind? Or was the Lord sorry for what He had done? No, He's speaking in terms, but the principle is there. My determination is to bring judgment upon the wicked. But praise God, just like in Noah... Just like in every other situation, Sodom and Gomorrah, and every other place where we see these things, especially where it talks about the Lord repented, we see there is a judgment of the wicked, but a deliverance for the people of God. I am the Lord, I change not. God didn't change. Our perspective, our viewpoint, our vantage point is that Moses stood before God and pleaded with God and set forth the Word of God from his very own lips that he had given to the people of Israel throughout the ages through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and now down into the children of Israel as they have came out of Egypt. He has reiterated to them the Word of God. What is Moses doing? 
He is interceding for the people. What is Moses doing? He is bringing forth and preaching the message of the Gospel. He is reiterating the very fact of the covenant of God. He's not trying to tell God, you need to do this because you said this, or he's making God change his mind. No, what is happening? There is an interceding. As Christ has gone before God, after, after He has died and resurrected and has ascended to the throne of God, where the Bible says that He ever lives to intercede, is He having to remind God, uh-uh, God, you can't judge them. I died for them. Is Jesus doing that? Is He having to remind God, uh-uh, we forgive them of their sin. You can't, you can't do that. No, 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 you can't destroy them. And on the day of judgment, whenever we stand there and judgment is being wrought out and He separates the sheep and the goat, and He says, alright, sheep, you're off to the... Or, no, 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 wait a minute. Remember, I did that. Do we have to remind God those things? And I know people say, well, preacher, I think you're being a little silly now. And everything. No, brother, whenever we look at this Scripture and we see that God repented of the evil and we lay to that an interpretation that God changed His mind or God had remorse or sorrow or was sorry for what he had done in, in that something didn't go according to plan, then we're doing basically the same thing. We're saying that someone, Moses here, is having to stand up for God and remind him of his duty, his covenant. No, what is it? It's Jesus. Remember back a few weeks ago whenever I talked about Christ interceding for us in that intercession, that the fact that Jesus was sitting on the throne alive... There was the intercession. He is there. All has been completed. He has wrought perfect salvation for His people. Therefore, He is the constant reminder, just the fact that He ever lives, the constant reminder that He has delivered His people. Moses is the interceder. He is the proclaimer of the covenant. He isn't changing God's mind. Matter of fact, God is bringing Moses through something. See, what happened when Moses went down the mountain? Well, let's look here. Now, remember, Moses just pleaded for these people. God, don't do it. Don't do that. Don't do that. Remember your covenant with your people. Now, let's look what happens. Let's go a little bit further. And Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hands, the tables were written on both their sides, and on one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither it is the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh to the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and broke them beneath the mount. And he took the calf which they had made and burnt it in the fire, ground it to a powder, and strawed it upon the water. That means that he cast it and threw it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. So he took the very gold that they had made that calf, he ground it down to a powder fine enough that he thrown it out on the water, and he said, now get down there and drink it. And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot, thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. Whereas this Moses, the man, of the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, then cast it into the fire. And there came out this calf. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. Now let me just stop right there. So here is the very person who pleaded to God on behalf of the people, came down, got mad, and his anger waxed hot at him, 
And he said, who's on the Lord's side? And all the Levites came to him, but everyone else stayed. Now, let's remind us ourselves again something. Okay, we read that the Lord repenteth, which he thought to do unto his people. Moses was pleading for the people. He came down out of the mountain amongst the people. He saw that they were naked. Now, I don't believe that this is talking about they were physically naked. I think this is that they were naked in their sin, meaning that they were open with their sin and they had no shame in what they were doing. They were in the, down there worshiping this calf. They were worshiping and giving credence what God had done to this calf. And they had no qualms. They had no problem being, being there. Just as Adam, whenever he was caught in his sin, was laid naked before God. Meaning God knew everything that had happened. God knew every, everything about their heart and what they were doing. Same thing here. So let's remind ourselves. We just read that God changes not. Well, what about James chapter 1, verse 17? James chapter 1, verse 17. The Bible says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. There is no variableness. That, that, that means that God doesn't go back and forth on things. Okay? He, he doesn't change. That's what that word means. Changing. There's no variableness. And there is no shadow of turning. That means there's no even hint of God turning. So, there again, that to me is a more explicit verse. That God repenteth, meaning He changed His mind, that He changed, or that He turned. Because here, He said there's not even a shadow of turning in God. While we're there in Hebrew, or there, look at Hebrews chapter 13, just back a few pages. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8. We read Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, brethren. He does not change. There is no variableness or shadow of turning. Let's go back to the Old Testament. A few more verses just to solidify our thoughts here before we look at the rest of this. Numbers 23. Look at Numbers 23. And look with me down at verse 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie neither the Son of Man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? And hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Now, brethren, that is pretty clear to me. He is not a man that he should lie, nor the Son of Man that he should repent. If he has said it, hath he said and shall he not do it? That's, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. If he has said it, he will do it. If he has spoken, he will make good on what he has said. Look at 1 Samuel. Verse 15. 1 Samuel, verse 15, or chapter 15, I believe it's verse 29. It says, and also the strength of Israel, now who's the strength of Israel? Well, that's Christ, right? Christ is the strength of Israel. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. 
Now, brethren, those are explicit verses that say that God will not repent. So what is happening back in Exodus? What is happening in all those other five or six verses where the Bible says that God repented? Well, brethren, it was written with an understanding for us that what seems to be the direction that God is going to go, God's providence had something else purposed and planned. There was a change in direction, not on God's part, but in our view. There was a change in His providence. What seemed like utter destruction for all these people, God's direction changed and did not kill all of them. Let us read forth the rest of the account. He said, then Mo, verse 26, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? <clears throat> Think about the end. There will be a separation of the sheep and the goats. Who's on the Lord's side? The sheep are. Who's on the Lord's side? The wheat is. Who's on the Lord's side? The elect of God. Who's on the Lord's side? The child of grace. Who's on the Lord's side? The vessels of honor. The vessels created for glory. Who's on the Lord's side? Those who are the children of God. Those who are in Christ Jesus. They're the ones on the Lord's side. Here it says that it was the sons of Levi. What does that mean? Who were the sons of Levi? Remember, Levi was the tribe that God sanctified apart from the rest of the people as priests unto God. Does not the New Testament tell us that He has made us priests unto God? Doesn't the Bible say that we have been sanctified and that doesn't mean getting holier and holier? It means to be set apart for a purpose for God. Romans 9 says that He has made us vessels unto honor and for His glory to show forth the praise of His mercy and righteousness. There is a purpose in us being sanctified apart from the other people. There is a purpose that God elected a people apart from the reprobate. There was a reason for the reprobate and there is a reason for the elect. And God had that purpose and that purpose is not going to be thwarted. That purpose is going to be the same throughout all generations and it's not going to waver. It's going to look like it's going to come and go and do different things. But brethren, it is the same. The end has been already declared from the beginning. And God doesn't change. He doesn't turn. He doesn't repent. There may be a change in direction of God's providence but there is no change in God's mind or God's actions. Look what he says here. So we just seen, the Levites, he gathered themselves together unto him, verse 27, and he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate, throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. What did God purpose to do whenever He told Moses? He said, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Did God repent? No. He carried out exactly what He said He was going to do. But what was in the midst of God purposing to destroy these people? There was grace, and there was mercy. Who was on the Lord's side? Those who were on the Lord's side... He spared. Whenever Noah preached for 120 years, if you remember, 120 years 
before, God said, He looked down upon men and seen that they, that their heart was continual evil always. The intent of their heart was continual. And He said, the Lord said, I'm going to destroy. And for 120 years, Noah preached to those people. And for 120 years, those people were stiff-necked. And for 120 years, Noah continued to do and follow and trust in what God had told him to do. And at the end of those 120 years, God did exactly what He said He would do. He destroyed everybody, but in the midst of that, what did He do? He found grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God reserved for Himself a people that did not come under wrath. And He delivered them. Whenever Sodom and Gomorrah, God said, I want to deliver, I mean, I'm going to kill everybody that's sitting there. What happened? He did exactly what He said He was going to do. However, in the midst of wrath and destruction, God had a people who He saved for Himself out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Brethren, that's what we see here. God did exactly what He said He would do. What changed? Well, on our side, it looked like it changed. But God's providence did something that He had not revealed to Moses. I am going to destroy these wicked people. But I have people within them that did not. And I can only assume that these people that are being talked about did not partake of this folly of worshiping the gold. They did not have the folly of bowing down to the works of their own hands. But I think about that. Even among professing people that claim to be Christians, didn't, God, didn't Jesus say that on that day they're going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful works in Thy name? Oh, we were only worshiping this because we knew we needed to worship You and we knew we had to give You praise and we had to do Your work and do spread your kingdom and we had to be zealous for good works and get out there and do all these things and the Lord's going to say depart from me you workers of iniquity I know you not and he will cast them into everlasting fire now the Bible says a few things look with me just turn to Nahan Y'all know where Nahum is? That's not somewhere where we often go, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Nahum, right before Habakkuk. Habakkuk, how do you say it, brother? Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Look at Nahum. Verse 1, or chapter 1 and verse 3. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languish. You could go on and read more stuff there, but the point is, as it says right here, in clear language, God will not acquit the wicked. Now let's move from the letter. We've seen, we've seen Moses say, hearing God's going to destroy these people. But then the Lord repented, and then what happened? The Lord destroyed all those people, but He found grace upon His people. What do we see here? The Bible says that He is not going to acquit the wicked. Let me ask you, brethren, if you're a child of grace, are you not wicked? Absolutely we are. Absolutely we are. So if we take the letter of the law and we say that God cannot acquit the wicked, then that means the child of grace cannot be acquitted of the wicked because God said it. And if God said it, He cannot lie. He's not going to acquit me. Did God repent and change His mind? 
No. Why? Because at the very beginning, he always had a purpose that amongst the same group of people that he would reserve for himself 7,000 people. Not literally, but figuratively. That amongst the one loaf, out of one loaf, he has made vessels of honor and dishonor. Out of one people, he has divided those people who are the very same, but yet he has chosen to give grace to these and not these. And he has made a pledge that he will not acquit the wicked. Therefore, if they are wicked, there is no acquittal. There is no there is no grace, there is no mercy, there is no hope, there is nothing but wrath for them. You say, well, what about these people that are saved? They're wicked. There was wrath for those people on the Lord Jesus Christ who stood as their substitute, who stood in their place, who advocated on their behalf. And because of that, the wrath of God still was delivered, but instead of being delivered upon them, it was delivered upon Christ Jesus in their place. God found grace. God found mercy upon His people. So whenever we see the Bible says that God will not acquit the wicked, then we turn around and we look at Psalms 145. Look back at that with me. Psalms 145, verse 20. It says, here it is. The Lord preserveth all them that love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. See, that's not a contradiction in terms. Say, oh, so there we go. If we, if we love the Lord, then He'll protect us. Well, wait a minute. Nobody loves the Lord. <laughs> that's the problem. Nobody loves the Lord with all their mind, soul, and strength. I'm just going to ask for you to be honest with yourself. Can you honestly say that you have loved or am loving or think you at some point are going to be able to love the Lord with all your mind, soul, and strength? We can't do that. The Lord Jesus Christ loved the Lord with all His mind, soul, and strength. And guess what? That love was laid to our account as well. Have you loved your brother as yourself? Your neighbor as yourself? Those of the sheepfold, that's what that word neighbor means. Those of the sheepfold. Have you loved them as you love yourself? I can't say that I have. I want to. I, I, I try. I want to. But I find I can't. Not perfectly can't do that. But you know what? Jesus loved us to the uttermost. He loved His friends and laid down His life for them. He loves us with an everlasting love, the Bible says. Because there's no variable to change us in Him, right? He doesn't change. Therefore, His love doesn't change. Therefore, we are not consumed. That's where we see what's going on in God repenting. God isn't changing His mind or are going back on what He said, it is a change in the direction uh, as we perceive it of God's providence. What looks like total destruction for everybody, we see, whoa, wait a minute, there branches out a grace and mercy for some. But it was all predicated upon something being done on their behalf. Someone had to intercede for them. Somebody had to substitute for them. Somebody had to take that. Somebody had to take that payment for sin. Somebody had to live that obedience, and Christ did. Christ obeyed for us. He died for us. Therefore, all the living for God and all the dying under God's wrath has been accomplished on our behalf and has been laid to our account if we be His. Therefore, the living here in this life by us does not determine whether or not God blesses us, whether or not God gives us 
salvation, whether or not we become saved or born again or whatever term you want, that does not determine anything. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't work out things in us. Faith, repentance, hope, all that stuff. God works in us those things. But brethren, they surely isn't, aren't what gets us to heaven. The Lord preserveth them that love Him. We love Him because He loves us. He has shed His love abroad in our heart. See, we can't love God without God first loving us. And even at that, this flesh can never love God. That spiritual man, he desires the things of God. He loves the things of God. It just can't be accomplished in this flesh. Those are the ones He will preserve. The Lord preserveth all them that love Him. See, we've got to get the full story. We've got to see the whole thing. If we take and we cherry-pick verses out of the Bible, we can make God to do anything we want Him to do, right? Just like the molten calf. We can make that calf and fashion it any way. They could have made that into a kangaroo, but they didn't. They made it into a calf. There may be something behind that. I don't know. I've not been enlightened on why it was a calf, but there you go. Something for you to maybe go look at. But they could have made that anything they wanted. They could have made it to look like Moses himself. Or Aaron. Or Joshua. But they didn't. They made it into a calf. A bovine. Well, brethren, listen. God has preserved His people and he does not repent by changing his mind. He doesn't go back on his word. He may go in a different direction than what our assumption was by what he has said. Because the God doesn't reveal to us all his plans. Okay? You say, well, you know, there was a lot of people that did against the Lord. Well, yeah, well, Jonah, he jumped ship and went... Instead of going to Nineveh, he went to Joppa, right? He was on his way to Joppa. Well, let me ask you, where did Jonah end up at? He ended up at Nineveh. And he said that he wasn't going to preach to those people because he didn't think they deserved it. What did Jonah end up doing? Preaching to those people. Did Jonah even like the fact of what God did? You said you were going to destroy these people, God, but now you've shown them mercy. So did God change His mind? He said if these people would repent, then He would turn His wrath away from them. Is that a condition? Was that a condition on their part? Was God going to destroy every one of those if they didn't repent? And therefore they repented so God changed His mind? No. It was a principle that God set down. He said if these people will repent, I will turn my wrath away from them. God was letting them know this is what the case is. These people are wicked people and they are not looking at me, but if they repent, I will turn my wrath from them. And that they did. They turned, he turned His wrath away from them. But He destroyed them later whenever they forgot God. See, God does not change, brethren. So let us let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let Scripture shed light upon Scripture. Let's not have... Another verse just come to mind. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. If God repents and changes his mind or goes back on what he said, he's a double-minded man. That means God is unstable. But what was my point in all this? Why did, why did I even look at this this morning? Well, getting back to my first point before I started here. If God repents and is a double-minded man unstable in all these ways and can change his mind and go back on what he has said, then where is our hope? We now have no hope. This thing right here is just another religious book to throw along with every other book. The Book of Mormon, the Hindus' books, the, the Muslims' books, the Hira Krishna's books. I mean, Dr. Phil. You know, whatever. You know? We don't have any hope. If God can change His mind, if God can go back on what He said, 
or not follow through with what he said he was going to do. But no, we got to understand that we don't have the full revelation of what God is doing. Moses didn't have the full revelation of what God was going to do. He just thought God was going to wipe out everybody, but God had reserved for Himself His people. Abraham didn't know that God had reserved for Himself a people. To us, it looks like God changed His mind, but He didn't. I get up every morning saying, I'm going to go do this, or I'm going to go do that, or I'm going to do this. And what do I say? Well, God had something else planned for me. God changed my mind. God revealed His will. This is what happened. God revealed His will a little bit further to His brethren. But praise God that in every situation we see that in the midst of that wrath, in the midst of that anger, in the midst of all that judgment, the Lord had a people that He showed mercy to. Because He didn't have to show mercy to anybody. I say He didn't have to. He has to, in this respect, He purposed it from the foundation of the world to show mercy to some. Therefore, He has to do it because that's what He purposed. But what I'm saying is nobody is deserving of that and God is not beholden to man to give it to Him other than the sheer fact that He has chosen to do so. The boys haven't not done anything good or bad. Isn't anything about what they did. But God's purpose according to election. What was His purpose according to election? That there might be some that God shows mercy and grace to and some that He shows wrath and judgment to. Both to show forth the glory of God alone in the face of Jesus Christ. So let us give Him praise and glory today. Anybody got anything you'd like to say? Anything to add? Corrections or rebukes? Not always right about everything, so I'm always open for that. I think, brethren, whenever we get a Christocentric view of the Old Testament, whenever we get in our mind to always look for the Gospel in all of it and everything, a lot of times it clears up the inconsistencies in our theologies uh, about a lot of this Old Testament stuff, especially whenever it comes to conditional salvation, conditional works-based stuff. God has never, ever, 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 ever conditioned salvation upon works. In the Old Testament or in the New. It never was. That system under the Old Covenant of killing bulls and goats, that was not their salvation. Any children of God throughout that whole time, they were not saved because of those bulls and goats being slaughtered. Those offerings being made. They were not saved because they were people of God. The Israelites. No, they only say because of the new covenant, because of Christ Jesus. So I think if we've always looked for that, a lot of times that will clear up some of these inconsistencies that we seem to find in the scripture, although they're not inconsistencies, they're inconsistencies in our own mind. The error is on us always, just know that. It's always our lack of understanding. So we need to find out, look at the look at the uh, look at the uh, uh, plain and clear and let that interpret the, the seemingly gray areas. Alright. Lord, once again we do thank you for who you are and we thank you that you are a God that does not change lest we be consumed because our hope is in your promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us that you have saved us from our sin, that you have forgiven us of all things, that we have been judged in Christ Jesus and justified from all of our works of unrighteousness. And Lord, we, we thank you that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have access to you. We thank you for the ever-living Christ who intercedes on our behalf. Father, we thank you that in your purpose that you have chosen a people we know that we are 
no different than anybody else and we are so undeserving of salvation and that nothing we have done has gained us this merit of grace. But Father, we know that Christ has merited it. Christ has given all so that we might be free. Christ has lived perfectly on our behalf that we might not be held under the law. He has died. The death that He has died with the full wrath of God being poured out upon Him that we might be free. That we might not be consumed. Thank You, Father, for grace. Thank You for mercy. And thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that everything that we have said and done today has been in honor and glory to Him. We pray, Lord, that You would ever keep that in our forethoughts, Lord that we might ever be looking unto Christ Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that all things were created by Him and for Him, and may we understand that He has faithfully done all that You have given for Him to do and is going to be the one in whom all we bow. And Lord, we just thank You again that You have given us this day together. I thank You for all these brethren here today. And I ask, Lord, that you continue to minister to us, grant us faith, that you might continue to keep us in the doctrine of Christ and the faith of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would give safety to these brethren as they travel and go home uh, this week, Lord, and that, Lord, that you'd be with them throughout the week, that you might sustain them, that you might encourage them and edify them uh, through your word. And, Lord, I just thank you again that you give us this opportunity. What a blessing it is to be able to meet with others of like faith, Lord, and how you do edify and comfort our souls whenever we meet together and hear the works of Christ and what he has done for us. So, Father, Lord, we pray that you would be gracious enough to allow us to continue in that for days to come, years to come, until you come. So, Father, Lord, we just uh, give it all to you now in the precious name of Jesus Christ.